and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 5, or chapter 4. Be looking at chapters 4 and 5 today. Um, I don't know how many of you have read chapters 4 and 5 over the last couple of weeks. Hopefully you have. And if you have, when you look at it and you begin to unpack it, you realize that there's a lot there. Now what's remarkable to me is that what actually happened in these two chapters could have happened in a matter of a few minutes, maybe five minutes, something like that. Um, But there's so much that John saw in a short period of time that even though it could have happened in a very short period of time, there's a lot to unpack in these two chapters. Um, There were two books that I used in my study. Both uh, were ones that Dave King had recommended, and I would recommend them to you if you want to do further study, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, J. Otis Yoder revised that. It was originally written by J.B. Smith, and then The Revelation by Aaron Lapp. Um, And I also want to be clear um, that there's a lot of things in Revelation that are not clear, that we don't understand, um, that we don't grasp, that we don't um, fully comprehend, we don't understand the timing, uh, some of the the words that are used, we don't understand exactly what they mean. Um, But I, I want us to remember that there are things that are clear, and there are things that we know. So let's be clear on the things that are clear, and the things that are not clear, I think it's okay to speculate, but let's understand that that's speculation. So what are some of the things, I want to hear from you, what are some of the things that we know for sure about the end times and about the return of Christ? What are some examples of things that, that we know? We know that there is going to be a return. We know that there is going to be a return. And we do know that the apostles Yep, it'll happen unannounced, and it'll happen soon. It's imminent. It's any time. Yep, what else? Heaven is for real, and there's a door. Yep, what else? There is a remnant that will worship the Lord God Almighty. And worship him that liveth forever and ever. Okay. Okay, so everyone has the opportunity, whether they're dead or alive. Everyone has, in their lifetime, has the opportunity to make that choice. So let's not forget, if we speculate, let's not forget those things that we know for sure. Last Sunday, uh, Floyd preached on uh, some of the physical, some of the ways that God is, is described using physical human language. And he, he, he used a big word. Can anyone remember the big word that he used and what it means? A little bit of review here. Anth- anthropomorphism, I think, something like that. And what, what does it mean? Come on, this was just last Sunday. We were all here. Most of us were here. Okay, <laughs> Tom's shaking his head. What does it mean? 
I don't remember the exact, exact definition that Floyd gave, but it, the idea is that using something human, something physical, something human that we see and understand to de describe God who is clearly not human. Now, in Revelation, there's a lot of descriptions of Jesus. There's some descriptions of God. And I would tend to think that when, when John is in the spirit and describing Jesus and describing God, he's not using those, those types of things. In other words, he's describing what he actually sees. Now, is he seen with spiritual eyes? Is he seen with physical, is he seeing spiritual things with physical eyes? Is that possible? I mean, the, the, the mind really boggles. And as, as we look at today's lesson, as we think back to chapter one, the mind boggles as to what did John see? And we do know that he described it with physical terms and in an, in an attempt to help us to understand and really in an attempt for him to communicate what he saw. That's all that he had to work with was physical terms to communicate what he saw. And so I think it would be a useful thing for each of us to spend some time alone thinking about that. What did John see? And, and allowing our minds to just be totally and completely boggled by God and who he is and just, just allow, allow that, the realization that we cannot fully understand. And we, we really, it's revelation almost, it, it's an it's a, it's a attempt by a man to describe the, what I believe are spiritual things that, that he saw. And I won't get into that more, uh, but I wanted to, to mention that here at the onset. So we'll start in chapter 4. Um, and I found uh, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ by Jared, by, revised by Jared Schroeder is really interesting. He actually has a timeline in there. And he says, this is how things are going to happen. This is how things, things are laid out. Now, I don't know... If, if he would say, this is absolutely how it's going to be and there's no other way, or if he would just say, this is, by, by what he understands, this is, this is the best way that he would understand it. Um, what I found interesting is, is chapters 1 through 3, he would indicate that that is the church age and that we're in, the, in the, the time period for the church at Laodicea, the last church before the rapture. Um, and he has, he has his reasons for, for believing that, and they're all very interesting and fascinating. That's, that's on, I would put that on the speculation side. Um, he would say, you know, the seven churches were historical periods of time in, in the church age from Christ until the rapture. And I would put that on the speculation side. Very interesting. I think there's things that we can learn from that. Um, but I don't think that we can know that uh, for sure. Um, in chapter 1, verse 19, John was to write down the things which he had seen the things which are, and the things which are yet to be. Um, and clearly, chapters 1 through 3 are the things which are, and then here in chapter 4, uh, we begin looking at the things which are yet to come, or the hereafter. Now, I don't, again, I don't know if that means, uh, you know, John's writing this, and the things which are, clearly, uh, Jesus was talking to current churches at that time. So these are churches that are in John's, I'm, I'm trying to think how John would think. In John's mind, these are churches that are. And then the hereafter is to happen after sometime. Now, are we in the hereafter now? Or is the hereafter yet to come? That is something that we do not know. And I would put that in the box of speculation. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about a door. Uh, there's two other doors that we've talked about so far in Revelation. What are they? 
What are the two doors that we've seen in Revelation so far? Okay, an open door, a door of opportunity that appears like that no man can shut. Okay, what, what was the other door? Behold, I stand at the door and knock last Sunday's lesson, uh, the, the final church. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will commune together. So that's the door of invitation. Jesus inviting, Jesus knocking. And we have that choice. The, really, the key is in our hands whether or not that door is open. The first door is a door that God opened that no man can shut. The second door is a door that was closed, but we have the option of opening Um, Now, this door is a door into heaven. John's opportunity to see what no man had seen before. Now, I want us to take a step back and consider this. Okay, this is something that no man had seen before, a window into heaven. Um, Now, I don't know if this window into heaven is how heaven currently is, or if it's clear that this is a scene that will happen sometime in the future. But it seems to me like chapter 4 is kind of the, a standard, a typical day in heaven. That's, that's what it would seem to me. And I don't, I, again, I would put that in the speculation box. I don't know if that's how things are happening right now. But when I think of heaven, this is, this is what I would tend to think of uh, for whatever reason. And again, the mind boggles because heaven is outside of time. So we're living in time. Um, what is what's in the past and what's in the present, what's in the future, what does that mean in heaven and how does that all fit together? So a door was open in heaven and John was called up to heaven to see what there was to see. So there's, there's times that we ask, what's, what is heaven like? We would want a description or a picture uh, perhaps of what heaven is like. And I think, I think this is one way that we can see what heaven is like to some degree. And yet how easy it is to read through chapter 4 and just, just read through it without really digging in and getting the imagery and the picture of Jesus on, or God on the throne and Jesus next to him and the elders and the beasts and so on. Uh, yes. Yes, we would want those that are there to come back and tell us what it's like. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in verse 1, the voice of the trumpet might have been the same voice in chapter 1. It might have been Jesus' voice. We don't know that. That's speculation. Uh, but it certainly was a voice like a trumpet. A trumpet would indicate it was a loud voice and a clear voice. Um, so it was unmistakable. Um, it was easy to understand. Verse 2, John was again in the spirit, just like he was in chapter 1. Um, and as others throughout history, like Daniel and Ezekiel, for example, would have been. Uh, this kind of revelation was an out-of-the-body experience, and I don't, I don't understand that or how that works. Uh, but he was in the spirit as he saw these things. Now, I want us to notice something in verse 2. The throne was set in heaven. There was a throne that was set in heaven. And I want us to think about that in comparison to the thrones here on earth that rise and fall. There are no thrones here on earth that are set. Trump's throne is not set. Biden's throne will not be set. There is no leader throughout history whose throne was set. And that was, that was not temporary. All thrones on earth are temporary. So let's not forget there is no comparison between God's throne and all earthly thrones. Now, in verse 21 of chapter 3, it indicates that Jesus will sit 
with his father on his father's throne. Uh, but in this verse, in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 2, there is one throne, and Jesus is not on that throne with God, as I understand it. Um, and there would be other verses throughout the Bible that would indicate that Jesus is next to God, not, not on the throne yet, that there's still work to be done, that Jesus um, is not yet fully finished with the work that he will do. Um, Hebrews 1.13 would indicate that, and also Stephen's witness when he was being stoned, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and, and that's where Jesus is for a time. Now, in verses 2 through 11, I want us to notice something here when John describes the scene. Okay, this is describing what John saw in heaven, and again, this snapshot could be three seconds of time. And yet for John to describe everything that he saw takes an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of thought, and blows our mind and our understanding as we read it. But I want us to notice that there are some things that John says are like or as something. There's other things that he says that that's just how they were. He didn't compare them to anything. So what are some of the things that John describes in verses 2 through 11 that were like something? What are some examples of that? Okay, verse 3, God is like a beautiful stone or a glittering stone. What else? In verse 6, it says there's a sea of glass like unto crystal. Yep, a sea of glass like unto crystal. Yep, all the beasts were like something. Are there some things that are described without using the word like in that section? When four elders had white garments and crowns. Mm-hmm. White garments and crowns. And the things that came out of this from verse four. The things that oh in verse five? Yep, verse five, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Right, right. So he uses a lot of like and as for just about everything. And that, that indicates to us that, that what he saw is something that, that we're not used to seeing. That is, it's not, it's not he, you know, he didn't say there was, he didn't call it, there, there's a lion and there's an ox and there's a, no, it was a, a beast of some kind, a created creature, but it was like this. It wasn't exactly the same as. Um, he who sat on the throne was like jasper and a sardine stone. Uh, jasper is clear, as I understand it, and sardine is, is red. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald. That's more of a light green. Um, and what, is, what does the rainbow stand for? Covenant. covenant. God's faithfulness. God made a promise. God made a covenant um, to Noah that he would never again flood the entire or cover the entire world with a flood. Sea of glass like crystal, and then the four beasts, one like a lion, one like a calf, or as I understand it, uh, the idea there would be of, of an ox, one like a man, and one like a flying eagle. Um, and then verse 4, the elders. Who are the elders? Any ideas? Who are these 24 elders? 
This is probably going to be in the speculation box. Yep. Okay. So it's possible there's a representative of the 12 tribes and then the 12 apostles. All right. Any other ideas? Mm-hmm. Clothed in white raiment. Could have they been angels? Okay. Right. Yep. So it's very unlikely. I mean, I think we could probably say with relative certainty that they that they are not angels. Um, elders and other places are described in the Bible as as leaders in the church. Perhaps they're representatives of the church. Uh, we don't know that for sure. In verse 5, it talks about the lightnings, thunderings, and the voice coming from the throne. It's not clear what that, what that was, what that's about. But I, again, I get the idea that there was just an, an awesomeness. There was, there was things that John was seeing and hearing that were difficult to describe, it just an expanse of experience that was difficult uh, to put in words. Um, Yep, thunderings, lightnings, and voices coming from the throne. Now, it's not clear what the seven spirits are there in verse 5. Um, you know, it's possible that, they're, that those were ministering spirits, which would be angels. Um, in Aaron Lapp's book, he's, he would very strongly say that that indicates the Holy Spirit. Um, and as I understand it, the, the text would have the idea of, of a sevenfold spirit one sevenfold spirit versus seven different spirits. Again, I don't know that that's, that that's critical, um, and I would put that more in the speculation box. Verse 6 describes a sea of crystal, transparent glass, and then four beasts, which would better be translated into four living creatures. Beasts, we would, I would get more the idea of, of like a wild animal of some kind, um, but that, I think, would be the wrong idea, uh, more of a living creature. Um, now, I don't know, does anyone have any thoughts on what the beasts represent? Find it interesting that Ezekiel also talks about beasts. Okay. Were they, were they the same? Okay. So, okay. And were there four? Okay. Um, in, in, uh, in Smith's book, he saw a possible symbolism here between the four Gospels and the four beasts. Uh, Matthew describing Jesus as a lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark describing Jesus as a sacrifice or the ox. Uh, Luke as the son of man, so the one that was like a man. And then John as a high-flying eagle soaring with grace and truth. I, I think that's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, it's, it could be. Uh, I like better what Aaron Lapp said in his book, sees them as king of the wild animals, king of the domesticated animals, king of creation, and king of the birds would be those four beasts. So man is the king of creation, the lion is the king of the wild animals, the ox is the king of the domesticated animals, and then the eagle as the king of the birds. Could be. Perhaps they're simply representative of all of God's creation. So I, I think it's 
without a doubt here that at the throne, there's representatives from every part of God's creation that are worshiping him nonstop, uh, holy, 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 all the time. Now, in verse 8, um, each, of these, each of these beasts had six wings. Now, what do, why do they need six wings? Where else in the Bible does it talk about uh, something with six wings? What do they do with the six wings? What's, what's, the, what's the indication there? Okay. All right. In Ezekiel, they had four wings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Certainly would seem so. I had to think of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 1 and 2, where they used two wings to cover their feet, two wings to cover their face, and then two wings to fly. Now, that would have been the cherubim, I believe. I don't know if there's any, any uh, connection there. Um, but full of eyes, eyes symbolize seeing and perception. Now, if, if we try to imagine a beast as described that's full of eyes, I... I don't know, I just, that's, that's where, I mean, okay, I can imagine the beast, but then once, once they're full of eyes, I just don't understand what, what that looks like or how, how John could indicate that, or see that they were full of eyes. But there's certainly symbolism there, the idea of seeing, seeing all things and of perception. And they spend all their time saying, holy, holy, holy. And these three holies, again, they could correspond with Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Now in verses 9 and 10, it talks about the spontaneous worship of the elders. So whenever the beasts give glory and honor to the one on the throne, the 24 elders just spontaneously fall down, worship, and cast their crown. What is the significance of these actions? Arlen mentioned that this morning. What's the significance of these three actions from the elders? While you're thinking about that, let's, let's take a step back and let's look at verse 8. So the four beasts, they do not rest day and night. They're constantly saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which is to come. And every time that the beasts, in verse 9, give glory, honor, and thanks to him that sat on the throne and who liveth forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down and worshipped. <laughs> so do they do anything besides falling down and worshiping before God if the elders are constantly, constantly saying holy, 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 and they don't rest day and night. There's obviously an indication here that God is far beyond anything that we can ever come close to imagining. And when, we, when a person sees God or, and, and we would say sees God, what does that mean? Well, you know, Job and... Um, There'd be some other examples of people that would have, Moses, that would have seen God or seen something like God or seen his form or something like that. And Moses saw his back parts. And that that just automatically generates, like, it's like it's involuntary. It just involuntarily generates um, a posture of complete worship um, every every time that happens in Scripture. But I want to go back to that question. What is the... What is the, um, the significance of the three actions there by the 24 elders in verse 10? Um, they worship him 
and they fall down and they cast their crowns before the throne. Okay, why do they cast their crowns? Okay. Okay, giving their rewards to God. What, what do crowns represent? Glory and authority. Yep, kings, kings wore crowns as a symbol of their authority. And so it's clear that, that there's something, something that the elders had that they voluntarily give up. Now, we could say, well, you know, God made all, it was given to them by God, so of course, you know, that's just the, the right thing to do. But there's still something that they had, in a sense, had control over, that they voluntarily gave up to God and spontaneously gave up to God. And again, it's almost like, like they couldn't help themselves. Like when you see God, you just can't help but falling down and just giving him all honor and glory. And I, I don't quite, I can't quite fully grasp that, but it's clear that there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Yep, they were, they were pointing full attention to God on, on the throne. Yes, that's right. They did not want attention for themselves. Right, right. So anything that would have drawn attention to themselves, they, they gave up. Yeah. Tom, I think you were going to say something. Yeah, the 4 and 20 hours their worship, did that start back when God saw it and it's still going on and will go on forever? Or what's, uh, what's your Yeah, I mean, it's, I, it, they, don't, they don't stop for day and night. I mean, was that just, yeah. It, it seems like that's a continual action when God is on the throne and, you know, the, the beasts do what they do and the elders fall down and worship. And it's, again, it's spontaneous. It's something that's, that's continual. And then on to verse 11. God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power for what reason? Gives three reasons there. He has created all things. Um, he has created all things. And for his pleasure, they are and were created. And both, both created here indicate an action that was finished. An action that happened one time that was finished. It's clear. It lines up with, with the Genesis account of creation. All right, uh, we're going to move on to uh, chapter 5. So this, all we did here was set the scene. This is just the scene. There's really not a lot of action. I mean, yeah, there's action. There's things that are constantly happening. But this is, all we did in the last 20 minutes is describe one point in time in heaven, really. And this is constantly, constantly happened. Uh, moving on to chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 moves us into a time of action. So something's happening. Okay, so John was, in chapter 4, was just describing the scene, setting the groundwork. And now in chapter 5, there's something that happens. So in the right hand of him that that sat on the throne, there was a book written, uh, front and back, sealed with seven seals. The scrolls in God's right hand, which is a position of authority, clearly shows that it's from God. Uh, the scroll was unusual in that it was written on both sides. Typically, it's just on one side, sealed with seven seals, and required someone worthy to open the seals. Now, it's possible or likely that with seven seals, the scroll had seven pages, and each page had its own seal, and it's likely that the scroll was written by God. Again, I don't know that we know that for sure, but it would seem to indicate that it was written by God, which would give it immense importance. 
several of the times that God wrote in Scripture, the Ten Commandments would be one time, and uh, the judgment on Belshazzar in Daniel's time would have been the other time that God physically, I guess you could say, physically wrote with his hand. Um, and that would be an anthropomorphism, I believe, I guess. Although it was an actual hand, I believe, that, that they saw. But we'll leave that. We could, again, uh, the mind, again, boggles it as we think about who God is. Now, as I understand it, a personal will in Roman times typically had seven pages, each with its own seal, and it could only be opened by an appointed heir. So a specific appointed heir was the only one that could open it, and that heir must be both willing and able to carry out its terms. Um, now, there might be several heirs that, that could do it, and so there might be speculation about who would qualify and who would be willing or able. But I, but I think that gives us an indication of what's happening here. There's an heir who must be willing and able to carry out the terms, who must be worthy to open the seals. Um, so the strong angel asks who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals, and it becomes instantly apparent that there's nobody that's worthy. Now, I had, I've always kind of had a hard time understanding John's um, reaction here when he found out that no one was worthy. Uh, and we see that in chapter 4, John wept, or verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open it and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Nobody was even worthy to, to look on the book. Why did that make John weep? I mean, in the book was a bunch of judgments, as, as we'll see in the coming chapters. Why did John weep? Because nobody could open this book. Why did that cause such an emotional reaction from John? Well, was he not under the understanding that there was a lot of trouble for her? And who was going to inherit this thing? And who was going to judge him? And then he said, well, Okay, so it's almost like nothing could move forward. Nothing could happen. It's almost as if the world couldn't be judged or um, God's program completely came to a grinding halt until this book was opened. Any other thoughts on that? This scroll was likely God's written word. And the completion of all things was close at hand. I think John understood that. The completion of all things is about to happen. Everything is to be fulfilled. Everything is to be finalized. Everything is to be perfected. And yet, because we can't find somebody worthy to open this book, it all comes to a grinding halt. Everything stops. And Aaron Lapp, in his usual interesting way of stating things, states it this way. It would be like needing a key player to assure a win and the championship trophy. You just can't find that key player. 
or lacking one ingredient to make the first prize apple pie for the baking contest. You're making your pie and you, you're missing that one ingredient. Like, it, you just, you, it's not gonna be right without that. Or needing one small repair part for the combine. I thought the, the farmers could identi identify with this. Not too, many, not too many of you left, but needing one small repair part for the combine in order to finish harvesting the wheat before the storm comes with destructive hail. You just need that one part and you can get it done. You got the machine, you got the time, but you need that part. It's the feeling of having come this far, but frustrated, frustrated for lacking one thing to bring it to, com to completion. Those describe it, but they pale in comparison to what I believe John was experiencing here. God's entire program, which he orchestrated from the beginning of time, from before time, which he had planned and orchestrated and, and prepared for for so long, of Jesus Christ coming back for his bride and the completion of all things foreknown to God prior to time was stalled for the lack of one worthy man. The beasts, the elders, the angels, the living, the dead, none were worthy. And because of that, time stopped. Time completely stopped. And they were, they were finished. There was nothing that could be done. And I believe that's what caused John to weep. Now, Verses 5 and 6 tell us what, what happens next. Um, and this is the, the imagery of the words here is really interesting. So in verse 5, one of the elders says, you know, Don't weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. Now I want you to, to watch this carefully. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So what he heard was, don't, don't cry, there's a lion. A, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conqueror, can, has prevailed to open the seals. And he turned to look at this conqueror, and he saw a lamb that appeared like it had been killed. It had been, he saw a slain lamb. He turned to look for the lion and saw a slain lamb. And we're going to stop there. And I want you to think about this week and the significance of that. What he heard, I mean, what the elder told him and what he saw were two different things. Right or wrong? We'll let that. We'll, uh, we'll discuss that next week.